everyone. Welcome to episode 60 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me as always is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. What's up, Chris? So you're you're coming back to, to the good old United States of America pretty soon. Pretty soon, right? yeah. I've my my apartment is pretty much packed up, so I've moved to the other room because it's less echoey than than the <laughs> office space with all of my things packed up. Not that I had that much stuff with me in Germany. I try to travel pretty light, but yeah. So I'm pretty much packed up. I'm about to head to Stockholm tomorrow and play in the GP, and then head back to the U.S. right after that. Nice. I'm excited. Yeah, I am pretty pumped. I've definitely. Managed to get myself a little bit homesick over the past, <laughs> you know, month or so. It's really set in, and I'm I'm pretty excited to, to see time. my friends, see my family. Yeah, yeah. So well, I'm, cool. I'm excited. This should be good. So today we are going to be we're going to spend just a minute on modern because we did watch GP Detroit. Uh, there was a team unified constructed modern gp so you know some of the decks some of the choices are applicable some of the stuff that shows up is more an artifact of the way that the the team format is but it's worth talking about for a little while and then we're pretty much just gonna talk about spoilers for the rest of the episode because that's what we are excited about and Mm. we assume that's what what you guys are excited about too so we've got some pretty cool new spoilers, and we have one in particular that I think we're going to have to spend a, a pretty substantial amount of time talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you can probably guess which one that is, so uh, <laughs> that'll be fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm definitely interested in hearing your perspectives on it, some of its eternal applications. Oh, yes. Before we get too into it, I want to quickly thank our new patrons. So thanks to Mike and William. Uh, You guys are awesome. Really appreciate this. Could not do this without you guys. We have hit uh, an even 50 patrons now, which just, I don't know, feels really cool. Like part of it is like ego feeding or whatever. But I hate when people say like things are humbling because it's usually just like a a weird way of saying like I'm doing a great job. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah. the the fact that you guys really want to listen to us and you know don't mind throwing a couple of bucks our way, uh, it like makes a huge difference to us, and we really really appreciate it. And um, you guys are just super awesome. So if anybody else would like to become a patron, you can head over to Patreon.com/slash/MTGGrindcast, and pretty easy from there. Uh, come hang out in the Discord, have a good time, talk about some spoilers together. Should be fun. Yeah, definitely. So we got a, a pretty quick kind of silly Keeper Mole segment for today. This one is from our friend Lee, who has been trying a smattering of different modern decks. I think what he's <laughs> been doing has been showing up to Modern Knight and offering up his KCI deck in exchange for whatever anybody else will lend him. And <laughs> on this particular night, he ended up on Green Blue Merfolk. Which, I, that's probably about the only way he would have ended up on that deck. It's not his his type of <laughs> modern deck. But good to branch out every once in a while, you know? Try something yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but since the only artifact is Aether Vile, I don't think it's, it's one of his go-tos. So, this is down a game on the play against white-black Eldrazi in taxes. We've mulliganed once, so this six-card hand is Cavern of Souls... Island, 
Merfolk Trickster, Merfolk Trickster, Silvergill Adept, and Mirror Regery. Now, Merfolk Trickster is the Dominaria one, right? The the two two flash for blue blue. Yeah, that's the that's the new Merfolk that people have been playing around with in modern. Yeah, taps a creature and opponent controls when it comes into play, and and that creature yeah. loses all abilities until end of turn. So yep. it's uh it's the Tarmogoyf Eater. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. Your opponent attacks with a Tarmogoyf, you flash this in, you make it lose all their abilities, and then you block the O1. It's a lot of fun. But not overwhelmingly powerful against, you know, a deck like Eldrazi and Taxes until you already have a board, and so then you're clearing blockers or buying time or whatever it is. So this, you know, this hand mostly is a couple of bodies and one lord is is where we're at and also doesn't get going until turn two but that turn two at least is a silvergill adept i mean you know part of me just wants to give up and be like this this is not a deck that i want to be playing this is not a matchup i want to be playing because of hands like this where you just sort of like awkwardly cast one merfolk a turn and you kind of hope that you get big enough well okay so the the thing that i've heard about merfolk in particular is that a lot of the hands that you're gonna have are gonna look really bad because your deck consists of kind of only like three things it has lands it has two mana merfolk creatures and it has aether vial right so you're not really going to have a whole ton of hands that are going to include aether vial you're probably about a 40 percenter on that but so the the advice that I've gotten for piloting Merfolk decks is that your opening hands are going to look really bad, but you're gonna just kind of have to keep them and and hope that the deck is you know power the creatures are powerful enough to to kind of carry you to to, to victory. Um, but yeah, I think that due to the fact that we can look at the deck construction and say, okay, what are my ideal opening hands look like? Ideally, we have Aether Vial, right? So, you know, those hands are going to be way, way better than any other hand with this deck. But literally all of the other hands that I'm going to have that don't include Aether Vial are going to look like this six-card hand in the best-case scenario. We have two lands, and we have merfolk creatures that we can cast. So I, I definitely think that this is a keep, Due to that fact, we just don't have enough powerful one-mana cards to aggressively mulligan towards them, especially to a five, right? Um, and, and this hand also, it has a mirror regery, so hopefully on turn four we can start really exploding and casting kind of like all of our hand from there, because we can play the regery on turn three, and then when we untap on turn four, what the regery does is kind of like act as like an accelerant, because each merfolk that you cast gets to untap one of your lands, so sure. you're effectively making all of your merfolks one mana. So that kind of all, all that takes is like one land to be able to to do kind of like on curve. Yeah. So this hand, while it looks very weak, I think is representing a pretty realistic turn four to turn five goldfish. As crazy as that might sound. I think the main thing that just feels bad is that like Eldrazi Taxes is one of those like creature decks that has some disruptive elements a lot of which don't work great against Merfolk. And so you kind of want to be, you know, you'd much rather be casting Lord of Atlantis, Lord of Atlantis, Mara Regery, uh, than like Merfolk mm-hmm. Trickster, Merfolk Trickster. And like, like a hand that's full of Lords, like is actually a great hand in this matchup. And this is not that. This only has one Lord. So I think if you were mulliganing, your, your logic behind it would be like, I would much rather have a hand that's like a couple of lands and two Lords than anything sure. else. Yeah. 
Um, but I, I don't think that's the case. I think that just, like, we have the one lord in Mirror Regery, and, you know, we're very likely to draw into, like, one other lord or something like that. So I think that this hand just has the ability to uh, add to the board very quickly starting on turn four. Um, mm -hmm. And remember, the, mat the matchup we're playing is, like, white-black Eldrazi taxes. So that matchup is kind of all about who gets to, like, stick onto the board faster. If one person has an Aether Vial and the other person doesn't, then that, you know, that kind of breaks that dynamic wide open. But given what we have, and given that we have the Tricksters to kind of, like, slow our opponent down if necessary, I, I definitely think that this hand has what it takes to, um, uh, to win. Yeah, it's probably fine, especially since we're already on six. I don't think that you can give this one back. So, so yeah, so the follow-up question is... is do we keep Merfolk Mistbinder on top? And that's the, the green-blue 2-2 two -two lord, top or bottom. You kind of mentioned that one of the things that we're looking for is more lords. But I think that even more than that, we're, we're really trying to maximize our chances of hitting our third land for Mirror Regery. This hand really hinges around resolving Mirror Regery to, to have the explosiveness that you know, you're really going to want out of, out of this hand. So I think that anything that you can do to maximize the chances of, of making sure that you hit that land drop, especially since we're on the play, I, I would probably bottom this looking for our third land. If we were on the draw, I think it would probably be a different story. I think that if we were on the draw, given that we had that extra shot at, at drawing an extra land, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable keeping this on top just because it is kind of like one of the pieces that we're looking for, like one of the big fatty add a lot of power to our board cards. But since we're on the play, and since we're we're really trying to hit this third land, and then I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bottom this one. Yeah, I I think that's right because, and I don't have that much experience with Merfolk. I might have basically none. But <laughs> yeah, in general, with these kinds of creature decks in modern, if your opponent if their deck is working, then you don't win games where you just go like a creature, and then the next turn a creature, and then the next turn a creature. Like you've got to cheat somehow. And Aether Vial is definitely the most powerful way of doing that. Mirror Regery is another way of doing it. And especially since we have like this Silvergill Adept in our hand, we want a little bit of that mana velocity to make use of the spells that we have in our hand. And so right. I think maximizing that is going to be pretty important here. Just assuming that our opponent's deck is doing something, we're not going to beat it by going guy, guy, guy. So this th this is a better alternative, is, is increasing our chances to not be doing that. Right, right, for sure. I think that kind of sums up my thoughts. And I, honestly, you know, I think that this hand is actually secretly, like, really powerful in this matchup. Because if you, if you, if you kind of, like, imagine the curve, land go... They go, like, worst case scenario, land vile, right? Mm -hmm. And then we go, you know, Silverglow, Adept, Reveal, Mirror Regery, draw a card. Hopefully we've hit a land. Turn three, Mirror Regery. Turn four, we get to cast, like, two guys. And then, like, pass the turn with Merfolk Trickster up. And then we can, like, potentially even just, like, cast, like, two Tricksters on their turn. Like, tapping down all of their blockers, untap you know maybe play some more lords get in a really good ch attack in so yeah i think that this this definitely is like kind of like you know the merfolk deck in and of itself has a lot of like hidden power to it people kind of like look at it as a bunch of tutus or whatever and it definitely feels that <laughs> way particularly when you're mulliganing you're you're looking at your hand and you're like how on earth am i going to win a match of magic in modern but this deck has a lot of uh, kind of secret hidden power built into it if you you know what you're 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 doing yeah and i guess that is kind of the reason that 
you might lean towards keeping the the misbinder is because this hand is really leaning on that reagery a lot and Eldrazi Taxis has a reasonable amount of removal like they have path to exile and getting getting your reagery wasteland strangled is clearly like the worst case scenario for this hand you know oh, yeah. i don't know that you're you're beating that just by putting a lord into your hand and still awkwardly casting your like i think you you probably need to be just kind of crossing your fingers that that doesn't happen and hoping that if they remove it it's with a path so then you can still cast two spells and and get an advantage that way because um, we got to get an advantage in this game somehow, and and this this is the most likely way to do it is by drawing enough lands to cast our stuff. Yeah, cool. Um, but yeah, I think that about sums up my thoughts on this this yep. interesting decision. Yeah, um, definitely a lot to talk to about there. Yeah, yeah, more interesting than I kind of thought it would be. More more to think about <laughs> really. We did not see very much Merfolk on coverage of GP Detroit this weekend though. None of the, yeah. none of the teams running deep seemed to pick up merfolk for one of their seats for for some reason i don't know how much i know you you've been doing a lot of school stuff i don't know if you were playing in a tournament this weekend or if you got a chance to watch coverage or what uh i played in an iq this past weekend and i i did get a a a glimpse of what was going on in coverage so i was i was following up on on a lot of that stuff what did you play this weekend anything spicy oh yeah i played jund in in a modern iq uh just kind of uh along the similar train of what we were kind of talking about last week of I want to play something that's going to give me play to it. I think it was a a decent choice, but I, I ended up playing against Tron and humans. So I picked up mm-hmm. two losses in Swiss and wasn't able to make day two because of that. Or not day two, <laughs> top eight. Top eight. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just an IQ, guys. <laughs> Don't worry about it. No. Um, yeah, so I, I played against Tron and just... I think that that matchup is better than people think it is. I think that Jund has a lot of really good tools to to help Tron stumble on on making making Tron, which is really good. But was not able to get there. And then I played against humans, and and humans did human things, and uh, you know, yeah. just kind of had a classic game where I playing Jund was able to you know answer all of their threats and cards in hand, but didn't really have a lot of pressure. And then slowly the humans player drew a human after a human after a human which is just exactly what the deck is designed to be able to do and i you know i couldn't keep up after that right if you don't have like a a tireless tracker or something like that then right eventually yep yeah or just like a tarmogoyf that's attacking i think is like fine uh but really necessary to like compete with humans but kind of the problem is that like you answer the board and then you know and and maybe even like all of their cards in hand right but then you're both kind of like playing this top deck game and ironically, humans, I think, is just better from that spot. Because they can just draw into things like Manus Rider and, like, more humans. And Jund is drawing lands a very high, like, a, a high percentage of the time comparatively. Because mm-hmm. the humans deck only has, like, 15 bricks in their deck. There's even, like, four of the lands are redraws, effectively. So they kind of, like, have that element of card advantage over the Jund deck, which is playing 25 lands. Especially if they've boarded out their vials on the draw or something like that, then yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those games go long. I think that the humans player is actually favored, which is kind of strange, but <laughs> there you go. Right, because right, you've gotten the game state into the place where Jund wants to be versus, like, that's the game state it's designed to create, more or less. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, most yeah. decks in the format, that's exactly what you want. But that, yeah, definitely a problem in that matchup. 
So, so yeah, picked up some losses there and discovered the faults of, of playing uh, Chund a little bit. But, you know, I still had some, some really intricate and interesting matches over the, over the day. I'm looking for more of those, right? Uh, and that's, like, why I've decided to play more kind of, like, mid-rangey interactive strategies. It's because the thing that I want to work on right now is my in-game decision-making skills. Cool. Well, then if you're making progress on that, that seems like a productive weekend. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's nice to have these kind of like defined goals so that like even though I'm not spending as much time just like grinding Magic Online as I have been in the past, um, I still feel like I can pick out one distinct goal and then try to do that in like the, the, the amount of time I have. It's kind of like a, a fun and new interesting like time management skill that I'm, I'm, I'm exercising, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's awesome. It, it, it is tough when you have multiple, you know, responsibilities pulling you different ways. But if you can, I mean, a big part of it is like psychologically feeling like you are doing a good job of spending your time in the right ways. And, you know, having those goals, I think, is a big part of it. So good. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. So GP Detroit was this weekend. That was modern, unified modern, team unified modern. And on coverage, we saw a lot of... I mean, the, the decks were kind of split, like, the kind of the level level zero team construction was you had your Ancient Stirrings deck, which was Tron or KCI or Hardened Scales, which, boy, we saw a lot of, at least on camera. I don't know how much was in the actual tournament. And then you had probably Humans, and then you had likely a Celestial Colonnade deck. We saw a, a pretty surprising amount of Jeskai and also quite a bit of, of blue-white control. And, you know, there were variations on this theme, but that was definitely like the... If somebody just tossed you three decks to, to play in this Team Trios tournament, it was probably going to be from that sort of paradigm. So we saw a lot of, like, hardened scales versus, versus blue-white going on, and... Boy, that is yeah. not a good... That looks awful for Hardened Scales. Holy yeah. cow. <laughs> um, for sure. Yeah, Hardened Scales. I've been playing more Hardened Scales on Magic Online lately. That's kind of like a deck that I've been kind of like goldfishing here and there. And I've been really impressed with it. But but yeah, the matchup against Blue-White is whew, not not good. Too many yeah, sweepers. It just, yeah, and every time like a Terminus was cast or... It just looked so bad. Like, the deck has a really hard time saving up ammunition for rebuilding post-sweeper. All the plus-one, plus-one counters go away, so the man lands aren't really effective. You don't have a cranial plating to put on an Inkmoth Nexus. You have to somehow put more creatures into play and then put the counters on it. And so it, it is a lot worse than regular affinity against those sweeper effects. And, I like... I think we saw over and over again on camera just how rough of a time it has with these white control decks. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's definitely a game to be played because there are some cards in the deck that, that like, kind of create, like, an army in a can a little bit. Evolutionary Leap is really strong in that matchup because you can play out, like, two guys into their sweeper, and then if they sweep, then you can still have... If you have two green open, you can still have like two cards to to work with for for next time and then it makes all of their one for one removal really ineffective as well so i think that as long as they the opponent hasn't established some sort of like permanent card advantage engine you're actually favored in those matches also the mm -hmm. the one card i've been really impressed with that people have been playing more and more of is animation module 
and that kind of also helps in in those grindier matchups where uh, you can sandbag more threats because whenever you do play a threat, then you can also pay an additional mana to make a one one, and then you can just like use that one threat to to be pumped by animation module, and then pay an extra one for another guy. So like just like one arcbound worker with an animation module can be a like a, a you know a must answer thing against like a, a blue control deck. They're they're gonna have to use a sweeper on that. And then, you know, and then you can deploy your hanger backwalker next and then, you know, kind of go from there. So there's like game to be played, but it's, yeah, it's not pretty. Yeah. And it, it's much more like skill intensive from the hardened scale side because the mm-hmm. blue white player or the Jeskai player kind of knows what they have and knows most of what you can do. Uh, and playing around the sweepers or the point removal spells or the settle the wreckages, uh, that's on the hardened scales player. So definitely rewards yeah. practice. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you have a plan in that matchup, I think that you can definitely do pretty well. But it's it's kind of just that like the the primary game plan of the control decks lines up very well against the primary game plan of hardened scales, and there are individual cards that can be helpful in in sort of subverting that. But the I'm gonna make big creatures with plus one plus one counters matches up pretty badly against I have path to exile and and sweepers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, so, you know, I, I don't love being in the matchup where it's like, this matchup is terrible unless I draw this specific card and it resolves and, and things go okay. But certainly, like, there are other reasons to be playing the deck. Like, the re- the reasons to be playing the deck include that it's just, like, great against a bunch of the creature decks and you can still threaten Tron pretty hard and that sort of thing. So just being not great against Path to Exile decks is not a good enough reason to say this deck is bad or anything like that. Oh, no, yeah, for sure. The The deck is insanely powerful, and I've been playing a lot of it, and every once in a while it'll be, like, turn three or something, and I, like, I don't have a Hardened Scales, and I don't have a Throne of Geth. I only have, like, a Hangerback Walker and a Ravager, and I'm attacking with a, you know, I don't have a Walking Bliss in my hand, and then I'll just, like, look at the board again and, and like, do some math, and I just, like, have Lethal. <laughs> Like, right. <laughs> wait, hang on. How is this, like, conglomeration of weird artifacts, like, lethal here on turn, like, four or something with, like, no help? It's surprisingly explosive. But you gotta work. You gotta really work for those for those wins because lethal is not easy to find. And there's a lot of, like, weird tricks that you need to do to, like, m- m- like make sure that you're getting extra counters every once in a while. Really, really been impressed by this Heart and Skills deck recently. Yeah, cool. I, I have not actually played it myself. I've played against it, and I've, I've definitely seen it played quite a bit. But I, I would like to get some experience actually running it. So as soon as I do, though, I'm just going to run into Stony Silence every match, though. So well, yeah, Maybe. Yeah. We'll That's see. what your nature's claims are for. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Bringing in the side the narrow sideboard card for the sideboard card is my favorite thing to do. <laughs> yeah, isn't deck, it? Isn't for it? sure. Yeah, I find myself doing that a lot because I play a lot of these styles of, like, inherently broken but, like, easily hated decks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something, it loses to a two-mana white enchantment, so... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know that song and dance. Yeah, the old, like, like bringing in Fight with Fire against Blue-White Control for Lyra was, ne- like, I just... It's just not a thing that I like doing. It feels so <laughs> bad when you draw it, and it's... Like, it feels great... When they're like, Stony Silence, I gotcha. And you're like, ha ha, nature's claim. Like, it feels amazing. 
But when your opponent's at two and you're just like, and they've cast a supreme verdict and you have nothing and you're just trying to draw a walking ballista or some creature to put on pressure and you just draw <laughs> nature's claim. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, oh it's not great. But it, you know, it's important to note that nature's claim has a lot of really strange uh, utility in the deck. Hitting your own hangerback walker is something that you probably want to do pretty frequently with the nature's claim just to just to pop it if you don't have a sacrifice outlet which can be really strong sure. against like path to exile right so if they path your hangerback walker that's on three or something and then you nature's claim it and you still have three one ones that's really strong right, um right. so like finding those spots to be able to like do more with your weird niche sideboard cards are really important and i think that this is one of the decks that one of the few decks that that can can do something like like, like that yeah yeah that's true definitely get a little bit extra value out of that card than most dredge bringing in nature's claim or whatever is not using that for anything other than blowing up a rest in peace so it's nice to have a little more utility than just <laughs> i hope they don't just kill me with a spell and this kind of keeps me from keeps that from happening yeah yeah for sure i, I think it's hard to draw like format conclusions from a, a team unified modern tournament just because you're kind of forced into certain things like you can't really play like a fringe lightning bolt deck if you have a, somebody who wanted to play Jeskai and, and take the lightning bolts or you know you're also like taking the lightning bolts out of the sideboard of the kci deck in your on your team or whatever so i think it's tough to draw conclusions about like what the format consists of based on what the metagame looked like but there were some like individual card choices that I think were pretty interesting. Both of the Tron decks in the top four were running the whole, the the full four walking ballistas main deck, which I thought was was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've 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 liked this card a lot in Tron. It's a lot better than like the fourth worm coil engine in matchups where your opponent has Path to Exile. Uh, it's super flexible with Sanctum of Ugin. It is great against like hardened scales decks that are trying to do weird things with plus one plus one counters. It's great against humans. It's surprising how you know you get a bunch of mana off of Tron, and then you're like, man, I wish I could be casting Karn, but I guess I'll just cast this big walking ballista instead. And then you just it just wins the game. So yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, walking ballista, you know, in a format full of like small creatures or. Just, like, things that Walking Ballista can ping. You know, the card is surprisingly powerful when you have access to, like, 8 mana. If you get to the point against humans where you can just, like, spend all of your mana to, like, kill one of their creatures and it doesn't matter which creature it is that they draw, it's it's a good spot to be in. Yeah. Uh, that is a bad feeling from the human side. And the more the more Walking Ballistas are, are being run, the, the worse that matchup gets, I think. Yeah. Yeah, pretty easily. Uh, I saw Corey Baumeister was on Emrakul, the promised end, in his Tron build. Uh, I, I think he was saying that it just makes the control matchup... Control matchup already pretty good, but Blue-White has some tools to fight against Tron with. All the Fields of Ruin can definitely make a difference. Stony Silence can shut down certain draws. So it's it's not quite as lopsided as it was in the past when the deck had like Eye of Ugin and stuff. So putting in a card like Emrakul, the Promised, and to just completely disrupt your opponent's game plan, get it off of a, a Sanctum, and you just kind of have the long game locked up in a matchup like that. I thought that was that was pretty cool. Definitely sort of a a very like opposing philosophy to having the four walking blisters, or at least preparing for different different decks. Pretty high level choice, uh, and 
definitely looked very good against the control decks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Emrakul the Promised End is... I, I feel like we're kind of seeing more and more of it in these, like, you know, big mana strategies in, in modern. It also showed up in the sideboard of the Scapeshift list that mm. uh, that made top four of, of Detroit. Um, there's a, one of Emrakul the Promised End just kind of hanging out in the sideboard, which was kind of cool to see. Yeah. Um, and honestly, looks really powerful. And this this card, like, if you can afford to play it because your, your game plan is going to go late or kind of whatever, I think that this card is really strong. Might even be worth playing one in the suburb of Junt, which is kind of a crazy thought, but just like fits with the, the game plan a lot. In in particular matchups where you're trying to go late and then you just kind of like need a a big haymaker. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the trump. Like the, that's the reason it was banned in standard is because nothing was bigger than that card. And <laughs> right, in modern, yeah. still not, definitely nothing is bigger than that card. So Yeah, so I, I definitely really like the idea of kind of playing that and i think that it's probably one of the cards that is like more overlooked right now in modern modern's so vast that like you kind of like know philosophically that there are cards that just like aren't being played that probably should be being played just because it's it's hard for us to kind of like break through into looking at all of the options you know really analytically um mm-hmm. but one of the cool things from team events is that people tend to be in the mindset of like reaching for like a few other like weird oddball cards because they maybe their archetypes overlap in in some way right you can only only one person can have the surgicals so somebody's gonna have to reach a little bit farther for a sideboard card maybe exactly exactly and just like when that's on your mind you're gonna be more likely to kind of like think about like you know weird other cards that you might want to try out and i think that that's kind of like a, a cool thing that team unified does for like people's mindsets to allow them to come up with new interesting options. This the scapeshift list in the top four has a Vivian read in the sideboard. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that they, the the person thought about that and was like, you know what, this actually like fulfills a really important role that I know about my deck and I know that it needs to have that role fulfilled. Now is that did they have a a humans player taking up the Rex Sages or something? Is that is that what's going on there? at least a partial explanation for having the the vivian reed i guess oh yeah it yeah i think i think maybe i'm looking at this on goldfish and unfortunately it's mixing up third and fourth into all uh, fourth I see. place so it's hard to see i, I can't really tell who, what the team breakdown gotcha. looks like amongst these fourth yeah place i'm seeing players. now too yep um but it's it's likely that they that person needed some other answer to artifacts and were like, oh hey, you know, Vivian Reese like probably does that and also does this other thing that I want, like you know maybe just like a value mm-hmm. creature or value value permanent. Um, yeah, I mean, I I honestly so kind of liked it. like uh, in the semis they were playing against uh, Mardu Pyromancer and just I mean. Like, yes, they were losing the game because there was a Blood Moon in play, so any naturalized effect would have immediately won the game. But, like, all these board states that were developing, if the Scapeshift player had drawn Vivian Reed at any point during any of the games, it just would have been insane. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of cool. Kind of a nice, you know, putting that expensive card in your deck when people might be like doing things about your lands but i mean scapeshift makes so much mana that like having a five in there is like perfectly reasonable i kind of like vivian reed weirdly enough but 
I kind of would mostly prefer to have a couple of summoners packs so I can like maximize my number of naturalizes that I board in, even if I'm only boarding in like one or two Rex Ages or something like that. So yeah, 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 um, for sure. Because we saw just that that Blood Moon completely like it was just in play and the there was nothing that the Velikate player, the Scapeshift player, could do, and they just lost to it because they didn't draw, uh, they didn't have access to enough naturalizes, or I mean, they drew all lands, so it really didn't matter that much but if there were more naturalizes it would have given them more outs whatever we saw a surprising amount of jeskai maybe partially because both ben stark and lsv were on the ben stark jeskai special with four times hieroglyphic illumination main deck oh yeah but uh more more of the you know lightning helix celestial colony decks than we have been seeing in the past but yeah this this four times hieroglyphic illumination deck that's uh that's something for sure um i really like the idea of hieroglyphic illumination in in in, in the strategy because you're, you're looking for like an instant speed cycle to be able to maximize your hits of terminus on your opponent's turn so it kind of like fulfills that role that opt was playing for a while you don't get the scry, but you have the upside of potentially using it to draw two cards in the grindier matchups, which can be really relevant. Kind of cool tech there. Yeah, I mean, definitely like interesting to try out. Probably not something that you can really make a hard call on until you've played with it a reasonable amount. It definitely seems like there's a lot of matchups where you're going to struggle to find time to cast it. In which case, like obviously you can just cycle it. But, you know, the the more matchups there are where you just, like, can't cast it, the lower its utility is compared to an opt. I, I don't know. And uh, honestly, I think its its primary function is actually going to be just cycling it right. for one mana. And then a sub-benefit sub to that is actually going to be casting it for the right, full mana. Right. And I, I think one of the big losses that you have there is you have fewer ways to Snapcaster early on to go up a card. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But That's I know I that, like, after the tournament, Ben was saying that, hey, if you're going to play this deck, you probably want to go down to two Snapcasters, and that also lets you sideboard rest in pieces, which Jeskai has traditionally not been able to do. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of trade-offs there. Like, now that Jeskai has access to Teferi and Jace, and I guess these Hieroglyphic Illuminations to go up a card or two then it's less important that you're always able to have access to Snapcaster to get card advantage, and it's more filling a role as a utility spell, lets you get an extra path or an extra lightning helix or something like that. That's at least my understanding of that version of the deck and, and why it's constructed that way. Yeah, that all makes sense to me. Let's see, Martyrproc won the Magic Online PTQ, so that's a thing that happened. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, we'll give that one a little time to, to marinate before I'm, before I'm going to try out Martyr Proc in Modern, but I mean, <laughs> certainly good on, good on this, this player for getting there with it. Uh, pretty impressive stuff. But I mean, if you play against creature decks, gaining a billion life and having some Path to Exiles is great, but it's definitely a, a glass cannon-y yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it. it's one of those decks that has some, like, pretty much unwinnable matchups, but then some of the matchups are unlosable. Mm -hmm. So, like, really, really polarized matchups in that deck, which makes me think that in the right metagame, it could it could easily spike sure. a PTQ. Yeah. So, other notables about this PTQ are two Hardened Scales decks in, in the top eight, and also two Burn decks in the yeah. top eight. Yeah, so. definitely 
been seeing burn a little bit more in the past few weeks than than we have for a little while so that's definitely something to keep an eye on don't cut too many timely reinforcements from your your white blue sideboards that sort of thing still no bowmat couriers in these burns no. so a little disappointed well you know maybe you can spread the good word something <laughs> like that we'll just have to be a little more vocal <laughs> yeah yeah or I'll actually have to do well with one of my burn brews one of these days <laughs> when, I, when I try him out. Yeah, I mean, burn is tech, can be interactive. I guess it, it really is at odds with your philosophy right now of trying to, you know, play interactive decks. And yeah, right now, right now I'm not going to be playing any burn. But this Hardened Scales deck is making me, it's calling my name again. So, uh, yeah, you know, we'll see what math. happens. Can't go too wrong. So that's probably enough modern because we got lots of new cards to talk about. Let's jump into it. I'm so ready. Probably not going to hit every one of the newly spoiled cards. We definitely want to do some quick hits and at least give our impressions. Anything that we don't give its due, you know, we'll, we'll hit during the full set review. But we'll start with a big flashy one. So this is the new Niv-Mizzet. Niv-Mizzet Perun. Legendary creature, dragon wizard. Blue, 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 red, red, red. For just five... the most ambitious <laughs> mana cost that I've seen in a long time. It's, yeah, that is a commitment. 5-5 five, five flying, can't be countered. Whenever you draw a card, it deals one damage to any target. Whenever a player casts an instant or sorcery spell, you draw a card. So notably, that triggers off of opponents casting spells, too. Uh, yeah, this is... I mean, I just keep looking at that mana cost. That is quite a mana cost. Yeah, it looks like R&D is kind of like tinkering with like, okay, how powerful can we make a card if we make its casting costs really, really restrictive? And this definitely feels like one of those tinkering with the edges of castability versus power. And because the, the card is very powerful, it's, mm -hmm. you know, if you just kind of boil it down, it's a six mana 5-5 five, five flyer that gets you a lot of value. And I don't think that this is really ever going to have a ton of constructed applications, but it does have some interesting limited applications. It's, it's definitely an interesting card from kind of like a design standpoint, but I don't I don't think that they really hit it in terms of like making people really look to put this card in their constructed decks. Yeah, and I think this is going to be like as as tough as that mana cost looks you know, I don't think that this is actually really castable in a deck that's running, like, 25 lands and has 8 dual lands. Like, there's just going to be too many times where the the balance of your lands is incorrect to cast this guy on time. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's... In Constructed, that's that's a pretty big hit to take. It It's kind of mitigated by the fact that what you really want to do is cast this guy and then cast a cheap spell as well to get some value but you really want to be able to cast your spells when you need to cast them. And I think it's going to be harder than you think to cast this guy, even though you even if you're starting from a place like oof, that's a that's a rough mana cost, it's it's very difficult to to do this. I think the math is something like to cast it consistently on turn 6, you need like 26 lands in your deck and like like something like 14 or 16 of those need to make red and 16 of those need to make blue. So it just demands like a lot of of dual lands uh like you're into the running guild gates territory for it and that's i'm not i, I really want to avoid running guild gates if i can yeah not... unless you're playing some of the other sweet cards that we're going to talk about um hopefully in a little bit 
Yeah, some of the Gilgate specific cards. <laughs> right, um, right, right. Yeah. Which did look kind of silly, but one of them looked pretty powerful from what I saw, so. Yeah, there's some power there for sure. Yeah, this guy, I, I don't know, like, he's cool. Like, you can cast him off of Sarkin, like some sort of deck that has, like, Sarkin and the the tribal land from, from Ixalan. I don't know, maybe. Um, <laughs> but it's going to require yeah. some pretty specific stuff. I, I think... Who knows, maybe some Sarkin deck with this guy and Nicole Bolas is going to be great, but yeah. Yeah, I think that my closing thoughts on this guy are that his mana cost is a bit too restrictive for the mana bases that we have access to right now in Standard, which is probably going to shoo him out of constructive playability. Yeah, probably. Um, quite powerful, though. You know, like if this guy costs like four, a blue and a red, if you can make the mana work, then kind of... Try imagining what this guy would be like at four, a blue, and a red, and that's a really interesting card. So if somehow the mana works out, then yeah, this card does a lot of damage. But yep, just real tough to cast. We've got another pretty interesting is it card, maybe just completely outmoded by the existence of Teferi, but one of our two planeswalkers this set is Ral. Is it Viceroy? I mean, maybe it's not that interesting. <laughs> maybe it's kind of the like. <laughs> regular old five mana planeswalker three a blue and a red five loyalty uh plus one look at the top two cards of your library put one into your hand and the other into your graveyard minus three ral deals damage to target creature equal to the total number of izzets and sorcery cards you own in exile and in your graveyard and minus eight you get an emblem with whenever you cast an instant or sorcery this emblem deals four damage to any target and you draw two cards so plus one, get a card, minus three, kill a dude, minus Protect eight, itself. <laughs> win the game. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty cookie cutter. It's just it's an obnixilis, like that's just what this is. Yeah. Um Yeah. Cookie cutter five mana planeswalker. Definitely worse than Teferi, because it does not untap two of your lands, so it costs right. five actual mana. But this is definitely a kind of tap out threat that a blue red if you wanted a blue-red deck and you didn't want to have to make the sacrifice to put white mana into your deck for whatever reason, you know, this is a perfectly serviceable five-mana Planeswalker. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's it's probably going to see play in a few archetypes, maybe, as, like, their, their like, go-big Planeswalker sideboard strategy or something like that. These cookie-cutter Planeswalkers definitely have utility, and they do show up a lot in, in Constructed for Standard. So, you know, we're not going to be surprised at all to see this guy see play. Just not really excited about it in terms of, like, you know, anything new or interesting. We've, we've seen yeah. this effect before. We know how good it is. It's pretty good, but... Yeah, I'm not and in certain matchups, it. it's it's particularly great just to have a five-mana Planeswalker. And he works well with, like, Jumpstart, the, the is-it mechanic. But yeah, he's no, nothing really to get super excited about. He's no Teferi. Next up, we've got a couple of Golgari cards. We've got Izone, Thousand-Eyed. Two black-black, green-green. For a 2-3, Legendary Elf Shaman, which has Undergrowth as the Golgari mechanic. Uh, when Izone, Thousand-Eyed, enters the battlefield, create a 1-1 black and green insect creature token for each creature card in your graveyard. And black-green, this is an activated ability of black-green and sacrifice another creature. You gain one life and draw a card. So 6-mana 2-3 puts into play tokens equal the number of guys in your graveyard and can sacrifice them to gain a life and draw a card. I think 
it might have been Saffron Olive who tweeted this, but he said, uh, if they give me Seder Wayfinder back, then mm-hmm. I'm so excited to play this card. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, just like a, like a creature tool to be able to put creatures in your graveyard effectively for value, or just like any cards like that, I would be really excited to see. And, you know, could even create a, a, an archetype and standard around that. But unless we have those like key utility pieces, then this card is is going to be a little underwhelming. Yeah, and you hope that because undergrowth is the Golgari mechanic, there is going to be support for that. Maybe not quite Satter Wayfinder, but you know something like a Grim Salvage, some some interesting things mm-hmm. that are graveyard active, graveyard enabling. Because um, you know if this guy comes into play, and I don't know if this is a guy or a girl, I guess. This is a woman, right? Uh, so she, if she comes into play and gives you four or five tokens, then they kind of have to remove her or else you're going to block their guys and draw cards and gain life and then, you know, get even more ahead. Um, and, and so, like, a, a, a creature that comes into play and they have to remove it and you still have a bunch of tokens left over and that buys you time because clearly you're playing a grindy deck that's getting advantage over the long game... Like, I could definitely see this working out. But, yeah, we need more. We need to see what the commons are in this set, basically. Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, definitely a lot of context that we don't have quite yet of evaluating these cards. Yeah, but this is my kind of card. I want to play this. I want to find a way to do it. So, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm I mean, it looks excited. Sweet. One of the other Golgari cards is... All right, so I just want to take a second and stop being a spike and start being a... a it's not a Vorthos. This isn't really a story thing. This is more of just like a design aesthetic thing. I hate these split cards. Just, <laughs> just I, their the way that the, they're they're laid out. Or yeah, I um, mean the the box at the bottom with the artist and the stamp just looks horrible. The way that like you don't get one side of the left hand card because the box is in the way. Uh, I don't like the <laughs> naming convention where it's just like the first three letters are the same, but it's not necessarily like the same syllable sound. Like, find and finality. Like, that's not a good sound. And I know they've used up most of their possible split card names, but like the original <laughs> split cards are so good. Like, pain and suffering, assault yeah, and yeah. battery, and now we've got find and finality. Like, that's not a thing. I mean, it's it's maybe impossible for them to make split cards as good and clean as they have in the past just because they've used up that space, but they've kind of created an, an expectation with split cards that these ones are not meeting for me, so that's a little unfortunate. But some of these split cards do look pretty powerful. Uh, this one is Find and Finality. The Find side is a sorcery for two hybrid Golgari mana. Uh, return up to two target creature cards from your graveyard to your hand. And then finality is six mana, so four, a black, and a green. You may put two plus one plus one counters on a creature you control. Then all creatures get minus four, minus four until end of turn. So that's a, a weird spread of utility for, for a card like this. Yeah, it seems like the trend for these new split cards is that the, the utility... And the options that you get for them are are pretty pretty vast. Yeah. Like, kind of the next Golgari card that we might talk about is Status and Statue, where you get, like, this really pretty strong combat trick on one end for one mana, and then the other end is just, like, a four-mana removal spell. 
we can talk about these at the same time. Uh, status yeah. is one hybrid for an instant. Target creature gets plus one, plus one, and death touch until end of turn. And then statue is two, a black and a green for an instant. Destroy target artifact creature or enchantment. Yeah, yeah. Similar kind of philosophy behind these two designs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just like a lot of differing utility. So like find and finality, you get this card advantage, late game, pick up my creature's half of it and then you also have like a sweeper effect that's going to be really good when you're behind on board so hopefully this like trend of like a lot of options continues throughout the whole set and i you know i i feel like i'm seeing a trend of the fact that that's going to be true because those the games where you have more options are going to be games where you feel like you have more play to it and you know and the games are going to be a little more intricate i really really like that it feels like rnd is pushing these cards in that direction i think that it's going to give standard a lot more play to it which i'm pretty excited about moving forward but yeah i can definitely i can definitely understand how uh the the kind of like the overall feel for these cards might be a little off both kind of like aesthetically and and like you know why are these two effects on the same card right and it's kind of a shame i I actually really like both of these cards i don't know how you know if they're going to hit that power level and they're going to be effects that specifically I want enough that they are going to end up in decks, but I like having access to this. You know, I hate playing blue-black mid-range, and, uh, like, my opponent got out a little ahead of me, and they went wide, and this is not a deck where I can afford to play, like, a Yeheni's Expertise or something in it, just because, like, sometimes I play against blue-white, and this that card just doesn't work there, and I can't afford to have that card in my 75. But if you have a card like Find and Finality... Especially if you have a deck that has a bunch of creatures that die, and so the the raise dead effect is just good in your deck, and then you can just also have this sweeper for if things get out of control, and you may not cast it very often, but when you do, it's going to be insane. So I'm I really like. I mean, and this might just be because of the the type of player that I am, but I'm a big fan of just having having an out in my deck, so I'm never cold, and that's not yeah. necessarily like a great philosophy that's probably kind of a leak but it does make me like these cards a little more yeah i understand for sure it well it's nice to have options right yeah um it, so, it is uh I, I like that they're pushing options pushing pushing more options into standard and i think that split cards are like a kind of a neat way to do that it's kind of like a variance reducer like mechanic i guess and you, you just can't afford to have cards like Brainstorm and Standard. That's just not what it's about. So you need to find like other ways of reducing variance. Um, and I think printing cards like these that are like split cards that give you options on what your card can do are mm-hmm. is kind of like a pretty elegant solution to that. So um, yep. I think it's pretty cool. Yep. We'll briefly mention the fact that status plus Chain Whirler might be a thing. We'll see if that mana actually works out. <laughs> right, Yeah. Right. I don't think that our mana bases are going to be very good enough to support Chain Whirler in a non-mono-red deck, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, Chain Whirler Jund does not really seem like something that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> I definitely hope yeah. that... I, I hope that mana bases can't handle that, because that does not... just doesn't sound good to me. Speaking of options, Deafening Clarion is a pretty cool kind of modal spell. This is one a red and a white for a sorcery. Choose one or both. Definite Clarion deals three damage to each creature, and creatures you control gain lifelink until end of turn. I did not notice that you could choose both of these options at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I feel like yeah. if you're ever choosing both, that's gonna be game over, but... 
I mean, if you have a 5-5 five five and they have a bunch of 3-3s, three then, yep. yeah, dude, choose both get them. And, and, and get in there, right? That's, that's pretty strong. Generally, three damage to everything is for three mana is pretty strong. I think that this card is is going to be a, a very key role player in in a few archetypes moving forward. It existing in red white specifically is a little more interesting. I think that it, like maybe if there's a Jeskai control deck, that's probably going to be the deck that utilizes this the best because because when you think red white, you think more you know some sort of beat down strategy, not like a control deck as much but you know there have been red white control decks in the past and i think that there are definitely tools right now in standard to to make that a thing again you know just like a bunch of white removal spells and you know like red planeswalkers or something like that yeah i was gonna say it probably takes a good planeswalker like a in a johnny vengeant or something like that yeah and we had chandra previously in standard but that's not going to be a thing anymore it'll be interesting to see if if that like style of archetype can exist again but I think like the the biggest win con that I remember seeing from these red white decks is that they used red for like some burn spells and then like white for more heavy removal and then I think in the past they used the 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 instant win the game like approach or approach the second sun yeah, yeah, yeah right 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 that's true we did have that that red white approach deck that gained a little traction never quite got there but if it had some better tools might have been more interesting some better card advantage tools and that sort of thing so you know definitely an interesting card and it definitely feels like it's going to have a place in standard in the future but it'll be interesting to see what kind of archetype can support it in these colors yeah i mean certainly one red white deal three damage to each creature like we'll see some play at some point what will be yeah. really interesting if there's a deck that actually can use both sides at different times or at the same time you know maybe <laughs> like some sort of naya deck if you and this would probably be more of a sideboard card in a deck like that but if you've got like a naya color deck that actually runs a decent number of of hefty creatures like anytime you cast this and kill their guys and then attack with some lifelinking dudes against you know you boarded this in against a fast deck or a tokens deck or something that's pretty lights out so um, right right for sure definitely could be cool let's see did you want to talk about some of those Guildgate spoiled cards i didn't didn't put them in there yet but we should talk about them if you uh well yeah i mean the one that kind of caught my eye yeah the one that kind of caught my eye was guild summit so this is a three man enchantment in blue two in a blue when Guild Summit enters the battlefield, you may tap any number of untapped gates you control. Draw a card for each gate tapped this way. So if you have a bunch of mana available and a lot of them are gates, you can kind of use this to draw a lot of cards immediately. But I think that the bigger text on this card is actually the next little text box, which is whenever a gate enters the battlefield under your control, you can draw a card. So I think that this game or this card is like interestingly a really good top deck late when you like have a bunch of gates in play that can draw some cards and then a really excellent value engine if you just want to slam it on turn three leading with your non-gates and then just like start playing gates and and drawing cards is going to be a really really powerful draw engine yeah it, it definitely can be extremely powerful that gate cost is just a very high cost to pay like if we would if we viewed this card as like comes into play pay x you draw that many cards and then landfall draw a card like that card is is broken but, <laughs> yeah oh yeah you know this this cost of 
like how many gates can we play in a constructed deck and get away with it without like tripping over our mana like that's a mm-hmm. tough question to answer and then what's i mean i maybe the existence of this card uh and i know there was another at least another card that acknowledged gates maybe we're getting maze's end again and that could be a win condition and just a very ponderous deck uh that you know it doesn't really care that it has a bunch of lands that come into play tap because it's a bunch of colors and can run the most efficient removal spells and but uh definitely like boy i do not like my lands coming into play tapped (laughs) yeah yeah for sure i mean it is a real cost especially when you're filling your deck with a bunch of gates right being incentivized to play more gates more tap lands is is always kind of like a dangerous proposition so yeah who knows if this will be like a viable strategy or anything but i the power level seems to be there if if the downside isn't too great right and and i think you know one of the things you want in addition to being able to work around the tap lands and still be able to cast spells uh and keep up with your opponent like that's obviously something that you need to be able to do but I think if you're getting paid in some other way as well, and maybe this is enough, maybe this is just so much card advantage that it, it pays you, but if you're getting paid in some other way as well for having gates with something like Maze's End or you know, who knows what exists, then that might start to pull me into, all right, I'll play these these comes into play tap lands and we'll make it work somehow. Yeah, yeah. We got our, I, I think to me, this seems like our replacement for Glimmer of Genius that's going to be quite playable in Chemister's Insight. This is three and a blue for an instant, draw two cards, and then it's got jump start. So you pay its cost and discard a card to cast it from your graveyard, which I think overall is going to be good enough. And I think having jump start on a card like this is more powerful than you might realize at first glance, especially because like you can discard additional jump start cards to the cost, and I think it it gives you a decent amount of deck velocity and like card filtering and card advantage. Uh, just like paying four mana to draw two isn't insane, but this just like gives you quite a bit of advantage over time and lets you really grind and get and get ahead by a lot of cards. Yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I I agree that the jumpstart mechanic is 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 really really powerful, probably more powerful than people think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I yeah, and this this I think is just like one of the examples of the of the kind of the more powerful ones where it's just going to give you a lot of advantage long term. And if you you know you can almost kind of like like in the super super late games, this card is almost like a draw four discard one, which is just you know kind of insanely yeah, powerful great. in and of its own. Yep, and you can put this in your graveyard with the the cancel that has surveil. Uh, like that's a, a super powerful play. Um, oh yeah, being able to yeah. hit jumpstart cards off of surveil seems really great. Put this in your graveyard off a of search for Escanta. Like I think there's there's just a lot a <laughs> oh, lot to do here. Oh man, yeah. Also, I do want to mention I, I I was thinking about this when we were talking about the gates. So before we get too far beyond that conversation, uh, you mentioned. Uh, potentially getting Maze's End back. Mm-hmm. And I think that that would be very interesting and dangerous to put in the same format as Scapeshift. Oh my goodness. That's probably correct. That makes me really doubtful that we're getting Maze's End. You're probably right. Because thinking about it, like, you know, you, you cast Scapeshift and you win. It's the same. Yeah. It's standard Scapeshift. It's perfect. I love it. Right. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, it's it requires you being at 11 lands rather than... Uh, well, sure, seven, but <laughs> but yeah, no, like that. You're you're probably right. I don't, 
I, I, I would be very surprised if we got Mazes End and Scapeshift in the same format, especially because we can play Grow from the Ashes and stuff as just a, a pretty powerful way to keep going up on lands. Uh, we don't have Hour of Promise anymore, but we we have other options. And yeah, uh, that seems probably like something they don't want us to be doing in Standard. I hope that they're just willing to try it out. Just print it and see, you know, 11 lands, that's so many. But I would I would, I would, would play that deck so fast. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that... Yeah, that, w- that would be great. And it, it, it would be, you know, pretty sweet. You know, like, negate is a way that you beat these ramp strategies. But if you just have a win condition built into your lands... Although, although, Field of Ruin kind of shuts that down pretty hard. If you don't have a way of getting um, your lands back from your graveyard... Yeah, because um, don't you have to, like, make it into your next upkeep or something with... Uh, yeah. How does how does Mazes End work again? Well, and this is all, you know, we are off on a, on some wild speculation here. Well, yeah, but, but you know. <laughs> so it, it has an activated ability. It comes into play tapped, and it has an activated ability of three, tap, return it to its owner's hand, search your library for a gate card, put it onto the battlefield, shuffle your library. If you control ten or more gates with different names, you win the game. So... Uh, oh, it's to, just immediate. Okay, but but you have to untap with Maze's End so that you can activate it, and then the end that the last part of that activated ability is when you win the game. So you do need mm-hmm. a turn with Maze's End in play, unless you can untap it or something. Um, well, if you and, have if you have Maze's End in play already, and then you cast Scapeshift, you can like float the mana to be able to activate it uh, once true. Scapeshift is resolved. But it, it, it doesn't mean, you know, if you're ever needing to search for your Maze's End with Scapeshift, then you're, yeah, you're going to have to wait a turn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. But but since you need so many lands in play, you'd probably have enough to cast Scapeshift and activate the Maze's End. But if Field of Ruin gets one of your gates that you don't have multiples of in your deck, and you don't have a way of getting it from your graveyard back into play, then your win condition just doesn't work anymore. So... <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that's that's definitely a, a downside. Do we have Crucible in standards as well? We do. We do. That was one of the M nineteen reprints. Oh so that would my probably god! Be a it's all coming together. This deck. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, hopefully they just reprint mazes then, because I want to see this back and forth. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. All right. Okay. That's enough of my tangent. But I'm that I'm kind of excited <laughs> yeah, about that. I I'm now kind of pumped. Uh, <laughs> Couple of couple of cool is it cards. Ionize one a blue and a red for an instant counter target spell. Ionize deals two damage to that spell's controller. Potentially bringing back some sort of counter burn strategy, maybe. Yeah, and it's just easier to cast in a blue red deck than any cancel is. So that yeah. that on its own is kind of nice. And if you are if you're playing some sort of tempo game where like two damage is actually going to make a difference, then yeah, this card is is sweet. Runaway Steamkin is one in a red for a 1-1 elemental. Whenever you cast a red spell, if Runaway Steamkin has fewer than three plus one plus one counters on it, put a plus one plus one counter on Runaway Steamkin. Remove three plus one plus one counters from Runaway Steamkin. Add red, red, red to your mana pool. So it's a it's a 1-1. By casting red spells, you build it up to a 4-4. You can't build it up any bigger than that, but once it gets to a 4-4, you can make it a 1-1 again to get three red mana. Uh, the fact that this triggers off of any red spell, including creatures, makes me think that it might be able to get there in some sort of mono red deck. I could see it. Yeah, 
I, I could see it either being some sort of combo enabler to be able to, you know, like continue cycling through your deck if, if that's what you want to do. Like this guy with a bunch of the single red draw card, give all your ice trample or some other weird effect. That could potentially combo pretty well with this guy or something along those lines as like a combo strategy or yeah just kind of like what you're saying and just like have him in like a red beatdown deck that all of the red spells that you cast after him are going to pump him up a little bit he could be like a four four for two in some instances maybe i um, don't think that's that hard you know cast him on turn two and then on turn three you cast like a viashino pyromancer cast a wizard's lightning this guy's a three three next turn he's definitely going to be a four four i mean that's yeah i mean bad, you're doing it right that's not a bad two drop so uh so yeah i mean the For more sure. i think about the the more i think about it the more i'm pretty into this game. yeah it's just kind of like an interesting design space and it'll it'll be interesting to see kind of like where people take that yes terrible top deck atrocious top deck but lots of two drops are so yeah i, yeah. I can't can't cost it too many points for that you want to talk about anything else before we get to our uh is it time <laughs> <laughs> it, it might be that time, time of the recording yeah where we we begin to talk about assassin's trophy yeah, you want to tell me what this card does? Um, right, so... I guess tell me the text, and then we'll talk about what it does. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, Assassin's Trophy, it's an instant for two mana. Uh, Black-green as the mana cost. It says, destroy target permanent and opponent controls. Its controller may search their library for a basic land card and put it into the battlefield and shuffle their library. So, oh, essentially... We're looking at Path to Exile, but instead of exiling a creature, it destroys any permanent for two mana. That includes lands, that includes planeswalkers, that includes just, you know, any old permanent on the on the battlefield that you want to get rid of. You just get to get it out of there and give them a basic land. General answers like this we know are very strong just based on our, you know, heuristic of like, you know, whenever they print a general answer, it's generally pretty good. Uh, and the cheaper those general answers are, the better they are. And two mana is definitely in the realm of construct or eternal playability. We're talking modern, we're talking legacy. You know, Abrupt Decay has been an all-star in both modern and legacy before. And this card feels like almost a strict upgrade to Abrupt Decay. You know, they get a land, right? But generally, the decks that are trying to cast these like general answer removal spell cards... They don't really care about, you know, your opponent getting an extra land here or there. Not to mention the fact that it's likely that a lot of decks in Modern and Legacy either don't have a bunch of basics or can't really utilize a bunch of basics as well. So that downside, I think, is pretty pretty marginal for this card. If we want to just, like, try to begin to crack open the benefits of this card over just, like, a like any of the other general answer cards that we have access to right now, there's a lot of application that is kind of hidden under the surface for Assassin's Trophy that you might not think about initially. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a ton going on there. There's definitely, like, some small weaknesses. Like, if your opponent plays a turn one Delver, casting uh, an Abrupt Decay on Delver feels just fine. Casting this might not. I mean, if they're one of the Delver decks that has zero basics, then it's great. But if they are one of the Delver decks that has a couple of basics, like giving your tempo opponent an extra land after paying one mana too many f to kill their, their turn one threat is not the best. 
but sometimes you do what you got to do. So there's definitely situations where, you know, like abrupt decay is what you would prefer to this card. And certainly there are situations where like you'd much rather just have fatal push or some other specific removal spell. But boy, this thing just has a ton of utility, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that the, the reality is that the decks that are going to be implementing Assassin's Trophy are also going to have those kind of like more narrow, you know, but like situationally better removal spells. A, a deck with Assassin's Trophy is very likely also going to be running Fatal Pushes and what have you, right? So I think that just like having access to like three Assassin's Trophies, I don't know if it's a card that we're going to want like four of in all of our decks. Well, the second um, might one be. is going to be a lot better than the first one a lot of the time. Because, you know, your second path to exile is frequently just better swords to plowshares. So right, right, right. that fact, might, I mean, costing two mana is very different than costing one. But, like, every deck has permanence in it. So yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's not very unlikely that the decks that are running this just want four every time, right? So I'm, 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 I'm just not 100% sure that that's going to be the case. Right, um, because you don't interesting... want it on turn two to kill their creature most of the time. You know, it's bad against humans on turn two, actively bad. So, right. you know, that that sort of situation is one where if you are playing the full playset of these, you might find yourself in that situation too many times where this is your opening hand removal spell and you're just allowing them to run over you by casting it on a one or two mana creature. But, you know, I think that we should probably start talking about kind of like the applications that this card has that uh, that many, many other cards like this don't have. I think one of the big ones is it can hit a Tron piece. Yep, that's huge. That's yeah. so important. Playing Jund or something against these like big mana Tron decks suddenly becomes much, much, much better for the Jund deck. They can just like use this card to like take a whole turn off of the opponent's development. You know, maybe even make it so that they like they can't develop further for for a couple of turns because they need to like find that Tron piece again. That that swings that matchup a, a, a ton, which is really crazy. Yeah, and I mean. It, it's great in a lot of the situations, even if they do go active with their Tron and they're like, all right, let's get this Karn out there. Like you, you can kill the Karn, kill the Karn and go like, yeah, right. Yeah. It's crazy. Just like being, yeah. Being able to answer anything is like, it's, it's really, it can't be understated for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's no matter how much mana they paid for this thing, you're getting it. Uh, and like, like one of the really cool things too is in a deck like Jund, one of the ways you have to build your deck is to try to maximize your Bloodbraid Elves. So every fatal push you put in your deck kind of like makes your Bloodbraid Elves more awkward. But you can Bloodbraid into this on any board state and it's going to do something. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a removal spell. that So it's not the greatest removal spell on turn two against humans, but you're happy to hit any number of Mantis Riders or whatever with it. Yeah, it, it just... That huge amount of flexibility helps it as a, a something you cascade into because it's always going to be good. And then just every matchup, it's going to have good targets. Uh, yeah. Hard to wrap your head around what this is going to do. Yeah. Thinking about all the matchups where in modern where removal spells in general are typically bad, this card has a lot of really good hits in all of those matchups. Against blue-white control, you can hit Celestial Colonnade, which is frequently a very, very annoying card. Uh, it can hit Teferi, it can hit Jace, it can hit Search for Azkanta, it can hit a Flipped Azkanta the Sunken Ruin. I, I think that the applications against Tron are very clearly there. 
You can take them off of Tron, you can kill their Karns, you can kill their whatever. Against KCI, you can hit Crack Clan Ironworks, you know? <laughs> like, the, that's, that's huge, right? It is pretty big. Main deck, two-mana answer to KCI. I, I think one of the really cool things, too, is it can make your post-board plans more focused. If yeah. I want yeah. to... If I want to play the surgical extraction game as Jund against like like Tron or Valakut, that's kind of yeah. tough because I don't have enough. You know, maybe I play one field of ruin that I manage to squeeze into my mana base, and I bring in a couple of full millionaire mages, and I'm really trying to hope to get that combo off. Now I bring in you know two full millionaire mages or molten rains. I've got my four assassins trophies. Basically, if I draw yeah. surgical, bring in my three surgicals from my sideboard. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Sounds um, great. Or if my plan is like against uh, again, or you know, like that can be my my plan against KCI is surgical, and then whether I manage to thought seize a KCI or I kill it when they're trying to go off right at the beginning of their combo, like boy, surgical seems to. I, I didn't go into this like thought train of thought thinking like, oh boy, surgical is great with assassin's trophy, but I think assassin's trophy just makes surgical a lot better, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And I've been a proponent of surgical in in Jund for for a while now. Um, I think it's just a better. It, it gives you better plans against a lot of matchups, and is just one of the better graveyard hate pieces right now, particularly against decks like Vengevine, <laughs> Bridgevine. Yeah, I you know I think that that's that's just going to be kind of extrapolated after uh, Assassin's Trophy is printed. One other thing, the Sultai decks especially in modern, have been traditionally like kind of unfocused, difficult to find a real game plan for them. This might be the thing that kind of like pulls them together. Because as a two-mana spell, this is extremely Snapcasterable. Oh yeah, um, I was going to say Snapcaster Mage, for sure. And, and, and so I don't know if this might end up being more of a legacy thing or what, but this is something that makes me actively want to try Bug in modern. Whereas there was just really no draw to it before. But now, yeah, being able to Snapcaster this thing. Um, and, you know, if we're talking Surgical, Surgical is so much better in a Snapcaster deck than any other deck. So, oh yeah, boy, yeah. we got some sideboard plans here. <laughs> it's happening, for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, just kind of like overall thoughts on it. Definitely think that it is very powerful. It's going to see play in Eternal formats. And I think that it's probably doing something healthy for these formats which is good i'm excited about it yeah i I think the the motivations here are pretty pretty good you know it it pushes you to run a couple extra basic lands in your deck don't be too greedy with your mana base great i'm on board the the one thing that i don't love is the way that it kind of may punish you for daring to play expensive spells because like getting your teferi hit by this is usually pretty bad but it also allows you to cast, like, if I have expensive spells in my deck, it makes my opponent really not want to cast this on my two and three mana creatures. If I'm threatening, like, I'm going to cast a five mana Planeswalker if you hit my creature with that thing. So hold, so you, you should probably hold that for a while. Um, so definitely, like, interesting play patterns. Hopefully it doesn't just become, you know, I don't know what the like bad outcome here is. Like you can't run four mana stuff or something like that, maybe. <laughs> but I, I I I definitely like this right now. You know, we we are seeing a trend, a slow trend of like 
the answers becoming good again and like fatal push was a big part of that and now this thing is is quite it's quite an answer (laughs) definitely an answer yeah, I mean, I think that it's kind of like continuing a trend that that might be happening in terms of like R&D where they are trying to transition things away from the hyperlinear, which we kind of like are right now in modern particularly. Modern is very, mm-hmm. very hyperlinear. So I think that they, they might be trying to print things to push that more back towards more interaction, mid-range kind of deal. Or at least give those interactive and mid-range decks uh, a better footing on the format. So, and I, I think that I like that philosophically. Who knows? You know, I, I, I can't really fathom this being too much of that, right? I don't think that this is going to push these mid-range decks into just like complete dominance in yeah, modern. Yeah, seems unlikely. <laughs> um, it, yeah, for, given how far into the extreme of hyperlinear we are right now, it seems unlikely that this one removal spell is going to is going to create that. But hopefully it gives it enough legs to be able to to be a real contender. I'd be pretty excited yeah. to see that. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm a black green mage at heart. I have definitely shied away from playing like black green mid-range decks in modern. I'm excited to see these, you know, these Golgari cards actively excite me. Um having a card this powerful, you know, and it's definitely it, it feels a little bit more exciting for Eternal formats just because the the range of threats is so wide that having a, a spell this cheap and versatile and, and potentially abusable with Snapcaster Mage or whatever feels really cool. In Standard, uh, it's a little tough because you, you often want sort of more tailored removal spells and, you know, against an aggro deck, giving them an extra land is going to be pretty miserable a lot of the time, but this is still going to be quite good in standard there's plenty of stuff that's great to hit with it yeah so i'm i'm pretty excited to play with these like answery decks with lots of grindy cards and stuff so we'll we'll see where this goes yeah i'm excited yeah me too but i think that kind of wraps up my thoughts on it yeah we will have more once we get to play with this card but for now yeah i mean i i just i definitely foresee it having a strong impact in in every format so we'll see yeah i agree so we'll, we'll do our Patreon question of the week, and then we will let everybody go. This one is asked by Venutolo. Venutolo asks, Collins won an SCG Cincinnati last year with five-color humans. The deck was basically an unknown deck at the time, and Collins' list was based on a list from Magic Aids on YouTube. When you see a new deck, how do you go about evaluating it? What makes the difference between something you look at and dismiss versus something you want to try? And then, if it's something you try and play a bit, how do you evaluate if the deck has potential to be a competitive deck? So do you want to, like, kick us off since you are the one who won <laughs> SCG Cincinnati with humans? Yeah, um, I think that one of the one of the elements of Magic that I enjoy the most is trying to, trying to break it. Trying to find some sort of strategy that is just better going into the tournament than everybody else. And I think that one of my strengths as a Magic player is being able to identify what is well-positioned or just like things that are inherently pretty powerful. And I think that kind of the the thing that allowed me to identify that humans was as powerful as it was is that I'm just kind of like not afraid to play something weird and crazy at a big tournament and for it to spectacularly fail. <laughs> um <laughs> Like, for for people who were paying attention really closely during that time period, 
I think that a couple tournaments before I played Humans in Cincinnati, I played Goryo's Vengeance, Grizzlebrand, Dredgevine at the tournament, where my deck was had Death Shadow and Vengevines and Goryo's Vengeance and Grizzlebrand in it. <laughs> you know? So and that deck was hilariously fun and, and really awesome, but it it wasn't quite there. It right? did not become in order... fifteen to twenty percent of the modern format. Oh, yeah, that deck has not become, yeah, 25% of the meta or whatever. <laughs> but I think the fact that I was able to just try it and play it in an open, if you do that enough and if you're willing to try enough things that you see could potentially be really powerful, eventually you're going to stumble across something that is very powerful. And I think that's just kind of what happened with humans where I was just throwing out all of these like weird ideas and crazy ideas and trying them out and playing in them at these big events and really tinkering with them and seeing if I could adjust them in a way that was good. And it led to a lot of tournaments that were bricks. Played a lot of these weird decks in these tournaments and they didn't go as well. I did make day two with the with the Death Shadow Vengevine mm-hmm. Grizzlebrand deck, so I was pretty proud of that. Um, <laughs> but I'm not I'm not really as much of like an innovative deck builder. You know, I didn't come up with the unique ideas for these decks on my own, but I think that I was just kind of the person that that saw the potential in some of these decks and was just willing to give it a shot. And that's just kind of like what what led that weird scenario of showing up to a tournament with a deck that nobody had seen before. And turns out this one's actually just better than everybody else's deck. And I easily won the tournament, right? So that's kind of like one of the elements that I really enjoy out of Magic, and Humans was just kind of an embodiment of, of that, I guess. So to try to answer the specific questions, like, so when I see a new deck, how do I go about evaluating it? There are many decks that I can look at just from experience and tell that the fundamental philosophy behind the deck is just m- missing to a certain extent. And that I think that comes just from experience and being able to understand... And being able to see like decks that are like similar to other things that I've experimented with in the past, or or whatever, I, it's kind of hard to pin down pin down exactly what what gives me the ability to kind of distinguish those things. But every once in a while, I'll like see a deck list, and I can I'm pretty good at kind of like playing out play patterns in my head of what the deck and how the deck is going to feel when it plays out, just because I've played so many weird different strange strategies sometimes i can look at a deck list and and be like whoa this interaction is really strong and i want to do more of that or the one thing that i'm not very good at is like pegging down the consistency of that interaction and i think that understanding the consistencies of those interactions it requires a lot of play testing but that's where you know you just have to like load it up on magic online and and do it i i want to give like a an unsponsored shout out to to mana traders where Mana Traders has really allowed me to just see a deck list and plug it in into Mana Traders, and then it, within like three minutes, I can be playing a match with, with that weird deck list on, on Magic Online. And I'm not afraid to just like queue it up into a competitive league just to see, right? And I, I find myself doing that a lot with like weird strategies. And, and, you know, just being able to play with it on Magic Online, like whenever I just like kind of get the gumption to do so, is. Will definitely teach you a lot about the consistency of the deck and whether or not these interactions are actually powerful and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I I also use mana traders, and I think that's a, a a huge. Even if somehow like it weren't monetarily better, even if I don't play enough different decks 
to make it worth it. Just that like psychological barrier of like, do I really want to like buy and sell cards so that I can have enough to to enough tickets to try this Vengevine deck or to try this like bizarre Gorio's Vengeance deck, whatever. Like that psychological barrier is pretty strong, and so having being able to just like rent cards and and mm-hmm. go and like two matches later and you're like okay yeah this deck is not for me it's not ready i'm not gonna go any farther with it and then you just drop from the league and you're you're not out anything so that's really nice but i think that yeah that like that playing with it is kind of the only way to really get there i i mean when i see a new deck the first way that i think about it is kind of analogizing it to other things that exist in that format and if those things have been powerful and is this doing a powerful thing in a way that like makes sense and so like one of the things now this is easy to say because merfolk has always been like really not good enough but like merfolk has its weapons it has it, it, it's it can make really big guys pretty fast but ultimately, when you look at the deck and you look at the cards and what they're doing, it kind of is just doing humans in a way that doesn't beat a lot of the decks that humans beats. And if if Merfolk had never existed before and I just, somebody came up with it and I looked at the list, that would be like the first comparison I would make is like, okay, this to me looks like a deck that is kind of humans, but only really has like the really beat downy draws and doesn't have the ability to to Thalia and Kite Self Rebooter and Meddling Mage. And so like that big weakness of the deck would be one way that I would say, okay, I don't think I want to try a deck like this because there already exists a deck like it. And this just has a weakness that that deck doesn't have. Um, and so that analogizing can be a really important tool. Then past that, I think that it's kind of important that there is something that like sparks your interest. Uh, you got to be kind of ignited by some idea, yeah, some interaction in the deck. And then all you can really do from there is try it out and see if that interaction actually does come up often enough to be good. Does Stitcher's Supplier actually make the deck good enough that I want to play these Vengevines? Like, you can't really, you know, you can Frank Karsten it, but you've also just got to play the matches and see if the deck works. And that's just unbelievably important is put in a couple of hours and get a feel for it and then 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 you can really go yeah i i think that if there's any like takeaway from all that is just like don't be afraid to try it brew it up put it on paper if that's you know a skill that you have and then and then just throw it through some leaks and play it and see how it feels don't be quite as results oriented based on whether or not you win or lose i think that one of the one of the really important elements to good play testing is go more by how draws feel more than how the games like actually end up concluding or whatever because sometimes like if it feels good then then you're on to like a really good engine but then you need to figure out some sort of better like you know late game plan or something like that so yeah definitely definitely go by feel of like you know how the deck feels when you're playing it and don't be quite as results oriented in terms of like you know, man, I, I just keep on, I keep, keep on losing. Like, don't disregard that. If you, you know, if the deck feels really good and you're doing a lot of operations and you're still losing every time, then that is going to tell you something. But you got to be, you got to be a little less results oriented, especially if you're only playing it through like one league or something like that. Right. And I would also say like, don't be afraid to dismiss a deck, especially if you can articulate why you are dismissing a deck. We kind of made some jokes about like Martyr Proc. And this is a deck that I am not 
going to go on mana traders and and grab the cards for uh, it's not a deck that i'm going to sleeve up and put in my modern gauntlet i understand the weaknesses of the deck like you know you look at the cards in it and you know that there are just matchups that it is going to really really struggle with whether that's combo decks like kci or whatever and it, it, it's you know you're gonna need to draw very specific cards to have a chance in matchups like that and uh, I'm just not really interested in a deck like that. And so by looking at the list, I can understand the weaknesses and I can say, not for me. Now, if it starts top eighting weekend after weekend, then that's a new data point that you have to start paying attention to. But for right now, you know, this deck has existed for a while. This particular iteration that won the PTQ is sweet and has uh, like Ameria and Sun Titan and Avacyn and stuff. <laughs> so it's cool. But yeah. none of these things are, like, fixing what my fundamental problems with the deck have been in the past, so I'm still not particularly interested in trying it. And that's okay. You can't try every single deck in Modern. If you look at this deck and you think, I love the idea of this deck, it, you know, crushes these matchups that I want to crush, I know what people are playing at my store, and I, I think that this is going to be great against them, then by all means, like, give it a shot. For my purposes, I don't really want to show up to a GP and just beat humans and then lose to everything else, and so I, I'm less interested, but maybe I, I could be proven wrong. It starts top eighting weekend after weekend, and then I need to change my analysis, and then we go from there. Trust your trust your analysis at first until like new data emerges to, to really subvert it, um, and I think it's fine to just no-sir some decks. Yeah, for sure. Well, cool. Yeah, so that should be it for us for today. Um, thanks to everybody so much for listening. If you want to find us online, you can check out our website, mtggrindcast.com. We've got a link to our Patreon there. You can go to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. If you'd like to lend some support to the show, come hang out in our Discord. We'll chat about spoilers. We'll BS about probably mostly spoilers right now, to be quite honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm tweeting from at mtg underscore grindcast. Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. So thanks everyone so much for listening. And have a great week. Peace. Peace.